This is the last part of the Headship series. So this is part six, the different roles of men and women in the church. So we started with Headship in the Trinity and then moved to Headship in the church and how the church is submitted to God and or to Christ. And then Headship in marriage with the husband and with the wife, the different roles. And finishing off with the different roles of men and women in the church. So I'll just pray for our message this morning. Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom and understanding as we look at some difficult scriptures this morning, passages that cause much confusion and consternation amongst believers, and I just pray that you will help us to understand. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably read some of these scriptures before, and yeah, they can be very confusing. So let's start with the memory verse. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And our usual explanation, head, in this context means the leader, the chief, the one in charge, or the top person. Headship has everything to do with authority or rank and its corresponding role. It doesn't have anything to do with worth or value or essence or being. It's like the different ranks in the army. The person with the lower rank takes orders from the person with the higher rank. However, they all work together towards the same goal or purpose, and that being they're all sub to the mission. They're all there to work towards the same mission. They're working together. So why is headship important? And we can say this one together too. Where there is recognition of and submission to these roles, there is order, community, love, relationship and harmony we see this in the way jesus related to the father now what did we see when we looked at jesus willing submission that's what headship is all about is willing submission everybody apart from god the father has at least one relationship where they must willingly submit and as believers we must willingly submit to christ and we also willingly submit to each other. So the outline for today is the roles of women in the church and broken into three parts. The older or more spiritual mature women disciple, teach and nurture the younger or less mature women, like less mature in the faith. Women help and serve in the church. Women are encouraged to pray and prophesy in church, but must recognize the authority of the male leadership of the church and their husbands. Secondly, roles of men in the church. And we'll look at what is the difference between a deacon and an elder. What kind of man can be an elder or pastor? What kind of man can be a deacon? The third part is two scriptural reasons for women submitting to their own husbands and other male leadership in the church. And they are that Adam was formed first and Eve, the woman, was deceived. And fourthly, some difficult and controversial topics and verses. Firstly, head coverings, and a visual demonstration of submission in many cultures. And B, the context of let your woman keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. So we'll cover those as well. So basically it's all part of the same thing and people will misunderstand these verses and get things a bit mixed up. So we'll start with the roles of women in the church, something that's fairly simple and easy. So the older or more spiritually mature women disciple, teach, and nurture the younger or less mature women. So Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 from the NLT. 
these older women must train their younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. So it's pretty simple, isn't it? What are some of the things that the more mature women must teach, train, and encourage the young women to do? Well, it's all laid out, isn't it? Now, the word love there means to be affectionate towards. Okay, When it says the husbands love their wives, it means it's the agape love, it's a sacrificial love, the volitional love. The love here is the phileo love, it's the affectionate love. So the wives are commanded to be affectionate towards their husbands and children. Secondly, to live wisely, be self-controlled and moderate. Thirdly, to dress modestly and be sexually pure. Then work hard and organize the day-to-day running of the home. Be kind, good and generous and submissive to their husbands. And remember that's as unto the Lord. The motive is not because the husband wants me to be submissive, but God has commanded me to submit to my husband. This is the role that God has put me in. So it's very important. Now, if this happens, if there's this discipleship, this mentoring, going on in the church with the older women mentoring and discipling the younger women, then God will be glorified because there'll be a good example. And there's a great need today for women to study the Bible and even to go to Bible college in that because how else will they be able to effectively teach other women, you know? And they can also be a big help to their husbands and their children. So, yeah. Men will be the spiritual leaders in the church, but it does not mean that women are excused from knowing the word. They also need to know the word as well. They need to be able to give good biblical advice to other women. And, you know, consider just how much more functional, healthy, and biblically literate our families would be if we had this kind of biblical mentoring going on with the older women helping the younger women in this really difficult task of learning how to be a godly wife and a godly mother. Now, if the example doesn't come from people in the church who know their Bibles and are teaching the next generation, then what are they going to default to? The world. Yeah, so that's exactly what happens. Now, the next role of women in the church is they help and they serve in the church. A good passage for this is Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So, why was Paul recommending Phoebe? Well, Scripture says she is recognized as a faithful and willing servant or helper in the church at Centria. And she was even sent to help in other churches. So I consider her to be like a missionary. And there's many women who have been very effective as missionaries, reaching others with the gospel and serving in the church, being very helpful. And thirdly, or part C there in the outline, women are encouraged to pray and prophesy in church, but they must recognize the authority of the male leadership of the church and their husbands. And so the verse is 1 Corinthians 11.5. 5. 
But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, meaning her husband, for that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. So, was it normal for women to pray and prophesy in church? Well, according to this verse, yeah. The context is Paul giving instructions for what happens in the church. We're going to come back to the context of dishonoring her head, her husband, later. Okay. But for now, the summary of the roles of the women in the church is they meet the needs in the local church. There's mission work, you know, becoming a missionary, teaching children, teaching other women, praying and prophesying in the church service. And again, while submitting and recognizing the headship of the male leadership. And we'll come back to that later. Now, the roles of the men in the church. Now, men have similar roles to women, with the main difference being their leadership position. So, again, we have similar roles, and they are uh, meeting needs in the local church, uh, mission work, being a missionary, teaching children, uh, teaching other men. So this is one of the reasons why we have our different Bible studies, the women's Bible study and the men's Bible study. The purpose is that the women disciple women and the men disciple men. This is a biblical example. So the men teach other men how to be godly husbands and godly fathers, yeah? Praying and prophesying in church, teaching the Bible to the church and leadership roles, which are the deacons and elders. So firstly, what is the difference between a deacon and an elder? And these are the positions that are only filled by men, as we'll read in the scripture. This is what the Bible says. So some men are appointed as deacons, which means just a servant. And deacons are given responsibility and oversight for practical things, like day-to-day running of the various ministries in the church. And other men are appointed as elders or pastors. And the pastor or the elders have the role of teaching the Bible to the whole church for the purpose of equipping. So it's the pastor or the pastors or the elders that have the overall responsibility of leadership in the church. So. A really good scripture that helps us to understand the difference between an elder and a deacon is in Acts chapter 6. They have a different purpose in their ministry. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, it says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. That means the Hebrew-speaking believers and the Greek-speaking believers, different cultures because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, so the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples, yeah, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven good men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. That is, the serving tables, yeah? Looking after the daily distribution for these widows. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So, this is a good example 
of the difference between an elder and a deacon. Deacon is more practical. Practical roles and the elder, bishop, pastor has a more of a teaching or spiritual leadership role. Now, why is that important? Well, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, And he himself, God, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For, and this is the important part, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we need good expository Bible teaching to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's in verse 12 there. So the saints, or the true believers, must be equipped for the work of ministry, for service, so that the body of Christ will be edified. That means to be built up, expanded, or strengthened. So the role of the pastor or the elders in the church is to equip people so they are able to, to serve, yeah? And equipping also has the idea of to put right. This is a quote from David Guzik. This ancient Greek word was used to describe setting broken bones or mending nets. These ministries work together to produce strong, mended, fit Christians. So really important here, who does the work of ministry? Who does the bulk of the work? Is it the pastor or is it the people? It's the people. The pastor equips and the people work, yeah? So the pastor, unfortunately, is expected in a lot of... I've heard this from different pastors. The pastor is expected to do everything, and they can't. Yeah. It's not my job to do everything. It's my job to equip and you guys to get out there and work, you know, sharing the gospel and serving in different ministries in the church. So that's the way God wants it. So just reading those verses from Ephesians again. As he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the people are equipped for the work of ministry. So again, God's people do the real work of ministry. Leaders in the church have the first responsibility to equip people to serve and to direct their service as God's leads, David Guzik. And Smith says, The primary purpose of the church isn't to convert sinners to Christianity, but to perfect, which means to complete and mature, the saints for the ministry and edification of the body. So interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So we're not here to convert sinners, but to help us to grow, to become more like Christ. Now, the natural result of that is that people will see us growing and want to become like us. That's God's way. And remember it said after the disciples, after the apostles selected these seven deacons, that the church grew and multiplied. So it's the way that God wants it to be. Now, what kind of man can be an elder or a pastor? Now, I'm reading these and taking a bit of time on this because... Often a church can use the wrong criteria for selecting an elder or pastor or even a deacon. So I'm going to read from two different versions. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, pastor, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now the same verses from the NLT. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honourable position. So as we go through, just notice the masculine words here, the he, husband, you know, husband and one wife, all those kind of things, yeah? He desires an honourable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. So, just to quickly summarize the qualifications of a pastor or elder, well, the first thing is they must be a man. Yeah? Did you notice all the masculine words there? You know, he, the husband and my wife, all those things. Yeah? It's very explicit. He must leave a godly life, and that means there's no obvious faults to criticize. No big moral failings, you know, not a drunk, you know, not beating his wife up, all those kind of things, yeah? To be morally pure and faithful to his wife, to be self-controlled, to be wise, have a good reputation, be hospitable, able to gently communicate with others, doesn't drink too much alcohol and doesn't use drugs, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle and not argumentative, content with what he has, a good father and husband, a mature believer and have a good reputation with unbelievers outside the church. So those are the qualifications for choosing an elder or a pastor or a bishop. Now, what kind of man can be a deacon? Well, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. This is interesting, isn't it? But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And from the NLT it says, in the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. Then those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, remember we just read about Stephen? 
He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of boldness. He was a, you know, really good speaker. You know, he's really loved Jesus. And he was given the job of waiting tables, you know, of distributing money and making sure widows got fed. So just because you might have the job of a, or the position of a deacon, it doesn't mean it's a lowly job. It's actually a very important job because there's a lot of responsibility attached to that position, as we saw in the scripture there, yeah? So what are some of the qualifications of a deacon or servant? Many of the attributes or qualifications are similar to that of an elder or pastor, so I won't go through all of them again. But there's some things which are a little bit different, so they must be honest. Before they appoint it, they must be closely examined to see if they meet the criteria, and then wise must be well-respected and not gossipers. Now, why did I go through all that? Well, there's many in church leadership today who, instead of being appointed to positions of authority based on godly character, they're appointed for different reasons. So they could include popularity, the ability to entertain, you know, charisma, the worldly credentials. You know, I've been to Bible college. A lot of people can say that. Ability to please people and make them feel good. You know, really friendly guy. I mean, that's important, but that's not why, that's not the only reason you'd appoint someone to be an elder or a deacon. Speaking ability, you know, someone might be a really good speaker, but Moses wasn't a good speaker. God chose him. Yeah. So, you know, often sexual purity and poor doctrine are overlooked and it does much harm to the church in the long run. The church may grow in numbers because it's a fun place to be, but it will decrease in power and effectiveness because the people are not being equipped and therefore cannot serve effectively. They are not growing in the understanding of the Word of God or relationship with God. Now, I just had this conversation fairly recently, and this guy was sharing how he had been through... I think six different relationships and he had not been sexually pure in, in any of those relationships and he was serving as a youth pastor at a particular church. <laughs> yeah, and I said to him, so, you know, that's sin. How come it wasn't dealt with in the church? And he just said, well, that's not a conversation they like to have. So this is what goes on. You know, the spiritual at the front, but what's going on in their personal life, you know? So, the church must choose their leaders very carefully according to scriptural qualifications, biblical qualifications. It's based on character. So, the third main point for today the two scriptural reasons for women submitting to their own husbands and other male leadership in the church. So, a lot of people in the church will disagree with this. They'll say that we're all equal and, you know, there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Gentile, etc., etc. However, that's not talking about role or position or headship. That's talking about our equality as regards to being or worth. In Christ, we are all equal, male and female. It's true. Slave, you know, free. It doesn't matter. In Christ, we're all equal. It's a level playing field. 
But that, again, is referring to our worth. It's referring to our being or our essence. We're all human, right? So what we're talking about now is the different roles that we have. So we can't look at the army and say, well, you're all equal, so none of you have to you know, submit to anyone else. Imagine the catastrophe that would happen. You know, I don't feel like obeying my superior officer today. I'm equal to him. There's no commander and there's no private, <laughs> you know? There's no general and there's no manger. It'd be chaos. And the same thing happens in the family, in the church, where you get rid of those leadership positions. So, yeah, the Bible makes it really clear that women cannot have positions of spiritual leadership over men in the church because of headship. And that is, headship is the different God-given roles and levels of authority or rank given to men and women in the church. Now, remember, women do have significant responsibility. They are to be teachers of women. Yeah, It's a big responsibility. It's not like you've got nothing to do. You've got a lot to do. But it's just not having leadership over men. It's the one thing that God has said no to. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, the Bible gives two reasons here for men, only men, having the positions of authority in the church. And the first one is that Adam was formed first, and secondly, Eve, or the woman, as it says there, was deceived. Is that a cultural thing? Or is that based on creation and the fall yeah it's nothing to do with culture and so people will go back and talk about the temple of diana and all that kind of stuff and, and they'll say oh the, the shaved head and they'll make all these connections but in the end the main reasons here is given in verse 13 and 14 for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression so the roles of men and women are not based on culture or any other temporary thing, rather the unchanging facts of the order of creation and a fundamental attribute of the woman, which was exposed at the fall. So let's look at animals formed first. Now, this is very similar to marriage. Remember, if you go back to Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Why did God have that plan? Because woman was made to be the man's helper. That was the role even before the fall. Yeah, That was God's design and plan for marriage. The woman was created to be the man's helper. Therefore, she continues to be his helper even in present-day marriage. Yeah, She comes under his authority. And so in a similar fashion, the first reason Paul gives for why men are given the role of leadership in the church is also based on the order of creation. The firstborn, for example, always has a prominent or higher position. So in the case of Adam, the command given in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, which says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That was not given to Eve, it was given only to Adam. Eve wasn't around yet. Yeah. So 
What does this tell us? Well, the implication is that Adam received his authority and his command from God. And Eve received hers from Adam. God told Adam what to do and then gave Adam the responsibility and the authority to tell Eve what to do. To guide her and to lead her in what is right what is wrong, yeah? And Adam did. He did tell Eve not to eat from that tree, yeah? So this is a pattern right from the beginning of creation. Now, the second part is not so clear. Eve, the woman, was deceived. What does this mean? So, men and women are different, okay? Have you noticed that? Women, generally speaking, are more emotional and spiritually sensitive than men. Now, that's a really strong point, okay? We'll come back to that. However, being more emotional means you are also more likely to be deceived or manipulated. So again, our strength is also our weakness. It works for both the men and the woman, yeah? So in marriage, I know from Marissa and myself, I'm black and white and she's emotional. Together we work well. With raising kids, I'd be so black and white, it'd be harsh. I'd be fully authoritarian. If Marissa was raising the kids, there'd be no discipline. But together, when we work together, there's a good balance, yeah? So God brings the two to make one. And so we complement each other. My black and white logical thinking, which can tend to be harsh and insensitive, is balanced with my wife's more emotional the way she's made. Yeah. She's just a more emotional person. So I think that's generally speaking the way it is for men and women. So why does Paul talk about Eve being deceived? Well, because they're more emotional, they're more likely to be manipulated and deceived. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. And there's a quote from White here. Eve's reasoning facility was at once overcome by the allegation of jealousy felt by God. An allegation plausible to a nature swayed by emotion rather than by reflection. And White also says, Adam and the woman, talking about that verse there. St. Paul says woman rather than Eve, emphasizing the sex rather than the individual, because he desires to give the incident its general application especially in view of what follows. So Paul's thing here, he doesn't say Eve was deceived, he says woman was deceived. So generally speaking, he's saying that women should not be in positions of spiritual leadership because they are more easily deceived, because they are more emotional, and the fall is the example. Now, David Guzik says here, there is another aspect to the fall, that has to do with the different levels of responsibility given to Adam and Eve. Both Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and Eve clearly sinned first. Yet the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of the human race, but always blames Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world. Adam is responsible because there was a difference of authority. Adam had an authority Eve did not have. Therefore, he also had a responsibility. Eve did not have. Adam failed in his responsibility in a far more significant way than Eve did. 
as well. Eve was deceived and Adam was not deceived. That's what the scripture says. Eve was deceived and Adam was not deceived. Okay, this is the reason, yeah, that God wants the men to be in positions of leadership. Eve was tricked, but Adam sinned. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he rebelled. This means that though Adam's sin was worse, Eve's ability to be more readily deceived made her more dangerous in a place of authority. So I hope you kind of get your head around that. In the Garden of Eden, who did the serpent go to to deceive? The woman. And God made the woman in a special way to compliment her husband, and it works beautifully. However, not designed for spiritual leadership. And David Guzik says, again, and this is reiterating this whole thing, it's not based on culture. Significantly, these reasons are not dependent upon culture. Those who say Paul was a sexist man in a sexist culture and discount these words are simply not reading what the Holy Spirit says in the sacred scriptures here. All right, let's move on. To difficult and controversial topics and verses. So let's see how we go here. So head coverings. And this is kind of going to help us to wrap up this whole spiritual leadership in the church. Understanding this. So head coverings, a visual demonstration of submission in many cultures. So 1 Corinthians 11 verses 3 to 10. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now remember what does head mean here? It's his authority, yeah? So if a man is praying, prophesying, having his head covered, he dishonors his head. Not his head as, you know, with his skull and his brain, but his head, his authority, his Christ, yeah? But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And who's her head? Who's her authority? Her husband, right? For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful, or since it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. So this is Paul's commentary on this thing about why men have the spiritual leadership. Yeah. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So I'm just going to go through this section of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse by verse. Verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So this is the foundational principle of headship or authority, and it's based on voluntary submission. Remember that, yeah? 
Jesus willingly submits to the Father. The man willingly submits to Jesus, and the woman willingly submits to her husband. So, headship has everything to do with authority or rank and its corresponding role. It doesn't have anything to do with value or worth or essence of being. Now, verses 4 and 5. Every man praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. That is Christ. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, being her husband. And this goes back to the previous verse. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, her husband. Not every man, just her husband, as we learned in previous weeks. So what we need to remember is that culture is important. And what do we know about the culture back then? Well, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jewish women all wore head coverings. That's just about everybody, right? We're talking about the Roman Empire. It was a public symbol of being under the protection and authority of another person, meaning their husbands. And it's still true in many cultures, especially Eastern cultures today. So in that culture, in the Corinthian culture, in the Eastern culture, Roman, Greek, or Jewish. And even now in the Eastern cultures, for a man to pray in church with his head covered would be seen as him publicly denying or rejecting his God-given headship or authority over his wife. He's saying, I'm not in control. I'm not the leader of this home. Conversely, a woman praying in church without wearing head covering would communicate very clearly in that culture that she was rejecting her husband's headship or authority over her. And both of these situations sends the wrong message to the people of that culture and thus would cause God and the church to be shamed and dishonoured. Now Clark says, It was a custom both among the Greeks and the Romans and among the Jews and express law that no woman should be seen abroad without a veil. This was and is a common custom through all the East and none but public prostitutes go without veils. So that's the setting that this was written in. A quote from David Guzik, In some cultures today, wearing a hat or some other kind of head covering is a picture of humility and modesty in the same way the head covering had an important cultural meaning among the ancient Corinthians. And now, some people get confused with the veil when it says some translation uses the word veil. You know, the Muslim veil, it covers the whole face. Can't see anything but the eyes. No, it's not that. And Fee has a quote here. It says, The use of the word veil is an unfortunate one since it tends to call to mind the full veil of contemporary Muslim cultures, which covers everything but the eyes. This is unknown in antiquity, at least from the evidence of paintings and sculpture. So a head covering is just that. It's a head covering. It doesn't have to cover the face. And if you go to the Middle East, that's exactly what they do. Just head covering. They don't cover their face. You can see all their face. All the Jews in that. If you're walking through Jerusalem, it's exactly what you see. Now, in summary, women are encouraged to pray and prophesy in church so long as they demonstrate that they are under the authority of the male leadership in the church. And we're going to find out how this works in the Western church as we go through the rest of the verses. Okay, now verses 5 and 6. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, that is her husband, for that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. For if, or since, it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So, in the culture of that day, 
the shaving of the woman's head mean different things in different cultures, but they all had a shameful meaning. So it's talking about shame here in these verses. It is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. So the Jews, what they would do if the woman was caught in adultery, shave her head. So if a Jewish woman had a shaved head, it was shame. She was an adulterer. In the Greek culture, a woman with a shaved head was usually a prostitute or a lesbian. So again, shame. Not a good thing to have your head shaved as a woman. So no matter what the reason, if a woman had a head shaved, it represented shame. So Paul is also saying that it is shameful for the woman to pray without her head being covered because she is publicly rejecting her husband's authority or headship over her. So you see the connection with shame here? It's a shameful thing to do for her to reject her husband's authority over her. So Paul's point here is that for a woman in that culture, to not wear a head covering is shameful, just as shameful as having her head shaved. Therefore, she should wear a head covering. Remember that verse said, But if or since it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Let her wear a head covering. Now, verses 7 through 9, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So what's Paul saying here? Well, he's reiterating the fundamental reasons for male headship, both in marriage and the church. That is the order of creation. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. And also the purpose of creation, man and woman. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. If you go back to Genesis 2.18, woman was created to be man's helper. So Paul's just reminding us that here in this whole context of headship. In verse 10, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Again, in that culture, women visibly demonstrated their submission to their husbands by having a symbol of authority on her head. Okay, now, verse 10 is interesting. Because of the angels. Yeah. This is not the only place where it talks about angels watching us. We have angels watching us today. That's what the scriptures say. We have an angelic audience. And there's a verse, I think it's 1 Corinthians 14, 40. It says, let everything be done in order. We're going to read it a bit further down. And God wants us to do things with propriety and order because we have an audience. It's not just for ourselves. The angels are watching us, and he doesn't want them to be confused. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So, Paul has previously emphasizing man's headship and the reasons why. And here we see the interdependence of man and woman, and also the equality of our being. You are all human, and we all need each other. We have different roles, but we are equal in worth or essence or being. And when we understand that we need each other, 
even though we have to understand that there's different roles, but we all need each other. So if I understand that I need you, then I'll value you. If you understand you need me, you'll value me. Yeah. So if I need you, you become important. That's what this is about. Interdependence, equality of being. Yes, we need each other. It's not, well, I'm a leader, so you're not important. No, I need you. You are interdependent. Okay, it says, For as woman came from man, so even man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And it says there also, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. So in the Lord we're all equal, but we have different roles and responsibilities. So verses 13 and 15. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And David Guzzi has a quote. From as long as we have known, women have generally worn their hair longer than men have. In some cultures, and at some times, men have worn their hair longer than at other times, but no matter how long men have worn their hair, women in general have always worn their hair longer. It's just a natural thing. Now, another quote from David Guzik to answer this question. The question is, is it a sin for a man to have long hair? Okay, you might have this question. So, based on this verse, David Guzik says, many people have thought that it is a sin for a man to wear long hair, or at least hair that is considered long by the culture. But long hair in itself can be no sin. After all, Paul apparently had long hair for a time in Corinth as a part of a vow, Acts 18 verse 18. But the vow would not have meant anything if long hair was the norm, and that's what Paul is getting at. So, it's not normal to have long hair, but it's also not a sin if it's for a reason, yeah? So, verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Interesting, isn't it? In the Corinthian church, Paul was saying that the women should have a head covering. Now, God has given the woman a natural covering. As the veil is a covering, so is the woman's long hair, or longer hair. David Guzik says, If nature has given woman long hair as a covering, then that in itself points to the woman's need to be covered, according to the ancient Corinthian custom. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 16, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor the churches of God. So now we look at our own culture. We've seen what it was like in the Corinthian, Jewish, Roman, Greek cultures with all the women would wear these head coverings to demonstrate, or let's say the married woman would wear these to demonstrate their submission to their husbands. How do we apply this in our own culture? Do women have to wear head coverings now? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, what do head coverings mean in our culture? Nothing. Yeah. So are you communicating anything by wearing a head covering? No. Okay. So this helps us to understand the importance of understanding the culture that we are living in. If we go to another culture, especially an Eastern culture, 
then yes, it would be wrong for a married woman not to wear a head covering because that would send the wrong message to the people there and bring much shame and dishonor to God. So when you married woman, go to the Middle East and become a missionary or something, you'd need to wear a head covering because otherwise you're communicating to that culture that I'm not submissive to my husband. That's how they would see you, right? But in our culture, this is just my perspective, I don't think you need to because our culture doesn't understand head coverings. We don't have that as part of our culture. But, <laughs> but there's this principle, okay? The principle remains. There must be a visible difference between men and women in church. Whether it's women having longer hair or the way she dresses, she must be feminine in appearance and not look like a man. The opposite is true for the man, who must not dress like a woman or have feminine appearance because this would be confusing. Why? To the angels, yeah? For the angels who are watching. So I could be wrong here. You know, This is a difficult passage to interpret and teach, but this is my take on it. I'm thinking that as long as the woman looks like a woman and the man looks like a man and the angels are watching and they can tell the difference, then it's all good. Yeah? So that's my take. So you'll have to come to your own conclusion on where women should wear head coverings. Right. David Guzik says, significantly, none of these three reasons, you know, that we've just been through, are culture-dependent. The older order and manner of creation and the presence of angels do not depend on culture. We cannot say... Paul said this just because of the thinking of the Corinthian culture or the place of women in that culture. The principles are eternal, but the outworking of the principles may differ according to culture. So the principle is there. How it looks in your particular culture will be a little bit different. Now we go on to our last difficult saying or difficult verse. The context of, we're going to look at the context of, let your woman keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Okay, so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. It says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, then let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Okay. So what is the context here? It says in verse 34, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now, this seems to contradict what we've already learned in 1 Corinthians 11, that women are allowed to pray and prophesy in public. Yeah. So let's look at the context and the specific Greek words used in the original text. And I think as we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, we'll see what it's trying to say. Verse 35 gives us a big hint, right? If they want to learn something, if the woman wants to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now, I saw on Amir Safadi's Telegram channel, this is going to be a couple of weeks, there was a Jewish prayer meeting in Tel Aviv. And the women are on the, I think on the left, and the men are on the right. And they had these dividers down the middle, so the women couldn't even see the men. So even today, in their culture, the women are separated from the men. And it has been for a long time in that way, in that culture. So basically, this is probably what it was like. 
And a couple of quotes. In the ancient world, just as in some modern cultures, women and men sat in different groups at church. Among the Christians in Corinth, there seems to have been the problem of women chattering or disrupting the meetings with questions. Paul is saying, don't disrupt the meeting. (laughs) Ask your questions at home. (laughs) In the Jewish synagogues, men and women sat apart. But if a woman chatted or called out to her husband, sitting far off, she would be dealt with severely. The Corinthian church may have adopted the same kind of seating arrangement, but with many women from Gentile backgrounds. They did not know how to conduct themselves at a church meeting. Paul teaches them how, and that's from David Guzik. Alan Redpath points out that Paul uses the ancient Greek verb laeo, which means to talk, question, argue, profess, or chatter. Redpath says, It has nothing to do with prophecy or prayer. It is not public speaking as such. It's more of a disruptive speaking, where the woman calls out to her husband, you know? So, if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, these verses are not a blanket command that forbids women to speak at all during the church service, but rather that they are not to chatter or call out to their husbands during the church service. And the overarching principle, 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. Now, conclusion. First, none of the reasons Paul gives for the different roles or levels of authority in both marriage and the church are culture-dependent. They may look different in different cultures, but the principle of headship is the same in all cultures. There are just different ways of communicating the same thing. Secondly, attitude is everything. All right? God's desire is that willing submission begins in the heart, and it's not just an external ritual. So, you know, if a wife starts wearing a head covering, but she's still not submitting to her husband, it means nothing. So, Wives should willingly submit to their husbands and women in the church should willingly submit to the male leadership in the church. Thirdly, the breakdown of headship, the principle of willing submission in the church, has at least two serious and devastating consequences. Firstly, God's name is shamed or dishonoured as God's model for the church is misrepresented. Remember, the woman represents the church submitting to Christ and the husband represents Christ leading the church sacrificially. yeah, And that's exactly how it is in the church as well. The church leadership are not there for their own benefit. They're there to serve the people. Okay, The pastor is there to serve the people, not to rip them off, not to be served by the people. He's a servant leader. That's the biblical model. Same as a husband is a servant leader. It's just a continuation of this picture of God's relationship with the church. So when the church does not uphold headship in the church, then this picture is destroyed. It's misrepresented. Now, there's also a flow-on effect into the family where husbands are not taught to lead and wives are not taught to submit. And this causes much pain, shame and dysfunction in families. And so one automatically leads on to the other because you're rejecting the eternal reasons for submission and headship. So, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these verses. I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and give us understanding. Lord, it's difficult to understand and correctly interpret some of these things. There's lots of different opinions. I pray that you will help us to understand the deeper principle 
the motive behind what Paul is saying and not to get caught up in the fine details. I really do want us to understand the big principle, the big picture, the motivations for doing these things. So we just pray that you will help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not saying I've given the definitive answer. I just I hope I've caused you to think. But as I said, the main thing that I want you to get is the, the big principle behind this, is that headship in the church and women demonstrate willing submission to the male leadership in the church. However form that takes, you know, whether it is a literal hair covering or not, or longer hair, the principle is the most important thing. I'll leave it to you guys to study that for yourselves and come to your own conclusion.